It is great to see people here on Sunday morning, other than Alan. We are so wonderful, we're just so blessed to be together today, and thank you for joining us as we're back in business. Yes, we're open, and uh, <clears throat> I did not talk to Governor DeWine and tell him to remove the stay-at-home order so that you wouldn't break the law in coming here today, but boy, what a couple months we've had, right? I mean, I feel like uh, you kind of feel like you've been in a sleep that you just can't wake up out of. And for those who are graduating this year and uh, for those who have been uh, socked in at home, not be able to go everywhere or anywhere, it's just been crazy. Now, we're going to go ahead and have our graduate Sunday on June 7th this year. So we've been communicating with our graduates, so we'll celebrate with them. Uh, coming up here on June 7th, and if you know of anyone or you can think of anyone that I might have forgotten, uh, uh, you might just let me know or someone for your family that we can mention as well. And it is Memorial Day weekend, of course, and uh, we're continuing in our Luke 3 and Me series, and I'm glad Andrew mentioned the thing about uh, it being Memorial Day because it fits well into what we're talking about here today in the Christocentric narrative of Christ. Now, when I say Jesus is king, he's king of what? All right, king of all. What's his name? He's king of king of kings. That's right. And this whole idea of... Uh, thank you, uh, Isabella. He was the king of the Jews, and I'll make mention of that just a bit, and then you I'll have you say that again for us, okay? So Jesus was the king. And when we talk about this Christocentric narrative of Christ, it's so very important for us to keep this all in context. Because over the course of time, like we have been experiencing in the last couple of months, we have been learning what it means to be subjugated. Now, there's a difference between subjugation and submissiveness. And with Christ as our king, he encourages us to be submissive. But as we are going to discover as we talk about the royal lines of the world and the kings that rise up amongst people and what we've experienced here in the last couple of months is rulers, they don't want you to submit. There are some who want you to subjugate. And the difference is in submission, we have the choice and in subjugation, it's their choice. And if we don't submit to them or if we don't subject ourselves to their rules and regulations, there's the fear that you might get a knock on the door from the sheriff or a deputy or a police officer saying, hey, you know, it looks like you got too many cars here in your driveway. What's going on? You know, are there more than 10 people here in your backyard? Well, uh, the kids have all been home the last couple of weekends, and so we've been breaking the law. I hope but no one called us in. None of our neighbors did, I don't think, because we didn't have a, a deputy come out and say, hey, what's going on here? But have you felt a little bit of that pressure? I mean, I was glad when I read in the uh, from Toby Spencer, he said, well, we're not actually out looking for people who are breaking this thing, you know, the thing from the state as far as the mandate is concerned. But we are learning what it means and what it looks like to live in subjugation. If you live in Michigan and you want to cut people's hair, we've seen the example of that. Where, nope, you can't cut people. And if you try, we're going to close your business down. We're going to fine you $1,000 a day. You want to run a gym? Sorry, you can't. Go down to Texas. You want to open up your salon? Sorry, you can't do that. That's subjugation. 
Now, I know we could argue till, uh, till the cows come home about whether or not that's right or wrong or different things like that, but I just simply mention it here this morning because we're talking about royal lines, kings and queens, because we come to the part in the Luke 3 and me, uh, Christocentric narrative of Christ where we're talking about the kings, and we talked about King David last week, and today we're going to talk about King Solomon and his brother Nathan. And the reason that it's interesting, and maybe you've just never made note of this, but when Matthew records the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph, Solomon is the line that it goes through from David. But when it goes, Luke records his through Mary's family, it is through Nathan that the royal line comes. Now, I'm going to explain to you why, and it really has to do with this important fact about earthly kings and queens and monarchies, and that is that when you talk about royalty, there's always going to be the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, someone should have gone, da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da, right? Isn't that what they did? Okay, thanks, Isabella. <laughs> Isn't it great to have the children in here with us today? We welcome you. Hopefully you all got your packs, so you can work through those things if you want to. But uh, we have the good, the bad, and the ugly in the royal line because here's the, here's the problem. is when we're talking about royalty, you just don't know what you're going to get. Is anybody else as upset as I am that we can't call Kate and William your royal highness anymore? Anybody else bothered by that? Does anybody... Does anyone else know what I'm talking about when I say Kate Middleton and William, Prince William? We can't call them the Royal Highness because they have decided that they no longer want to uh, operate uh, or fulfill their royal duties. Now, I got to thinking, what's a royal duty look like? Well, you make appearances and you go here and there and you uh, have big weddings and you have all this ornate stuff that you have and everybody... Uh, all the taxpayers of your country uh, or all the subjects of your country, they pay for it. Royalty sounds pretty fun, doesn't it? I mean, if that, could, if that were our gig, you could do that. So why in the world would Kate and William uh, say, no, we want to do this? Well, maybe it's because William knows he doesn't have a chance to become king of England. He's sixth in line. So it's probably something that will never happen for him. But the English... Uh, Great Britons, they take this royal stuff so seriously that if you start talking about it and you don't know what you're talking about, they just get all huffy. Because you cannot treat with disdain your royal duties because they're so important to the entire country. They represent the whole people of Great Britain. So when we're talking about these different things, uh, like Kate's name, Kate Middleton, her name is Mud in jolly old England right now because everybody thinks she has seduced William away from his royal duties. And when I think about it, I, what's this fascination with their lives anyway? I mean, who cares if William and Kate don't want to fulfill their royal, royal duties? Does it matter to you and me? Does it affect the price of tea in China? Maybe it might affect the price of tea in China. I don't know, but it doesn't make any difference to us, right? As a matter of fact, we don't understand royalty as much because in our country, we're not like most of the people around the world. 
who have kings and queens and monarchs and are subject to the whims of those kings, queens, and monarchs. We just don't understand royalty like everybody else around in the world. And it's been around since Gilgamesh, who was a king way back in the early days around the Babylonian area that we had talked about a few weeks ago. And then we have all the current kings and queens. And royalty is king in their countries. Now, that might not be why, or that might be why we here in America, in the American church don't concern ourselves with the royal line of King David or think about Solomon and their importance or even worry about whether or not Jesus was in that royal line. Because what uh, it meant in Scripture was it identified who the Messiah was going to be. And that's why it was important for us. So when we're thinking about these different things, the royalty and royal lines... They're not our favorite subject because our history involves throwing off the burden of living under kings and queens and monarchies. As a matter of fact, when we have Memorial Day tomorrow, we'll be celebrating by that. Celebrating that. By the way, join us up at the cemetery tomorrow. There'll be no parade, but we'll still be having the ceremony in uh, the cemetery. And I'm told that my speech has to be less than two minutes. So. Uh, come see if I can do that, right? That will be the miracle of the day, correct? So we have these royal lines, uh, and they're not our favorite subject because in our history, we don't like royalty. We don't like to be subjects. We don't like kings and queens because of the idea of tyranny. And our founding fathers, they had the wisdom to throw off the tyranny of King George, and we still fight today to hold on to our freedom. But some are saying, listen, you got rid of the tyranny of a king years ago, but you find yourself subjugating yourselves to those who want to put themselves in authority over you now. Now we just call them governors. So if we have that kind of situation, what we're dealing with, we think about how um, we are to see Christ in all of this. So we might, I might excuse your ignorance when it comes uh, on a personal level to the whole idea of the royal, but we should never dismiss anything in Scripture which is designed to teach us about the nature of God. And scripture teaches us that God never wanted for his people to be ruled by a king. But when the people in Samuel's day, this would have been King David, uh, the Samuel who talked to King David about becoming king, who, who, uh, who actually crowned him as king. In Samuel's day, uh, God did not want his people to have a king, but they longed for a king. And when... Uh, they kept whining about having king like everybody else in the world had. Everyone else had a king, so they wanted to have a king too. God said to Samuel, listen to all the people and what they're saying. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now, this is a fundamental problem of God being our only king because it, it would complicate the lives of the Israelites as they rejected God as their solo king or their only king of their lives. When you try to put a mediator between you and God who is a man or a woman, they are not perfect, and so they are going to do things that increase their power, their wealth, their fame, and they'll do it by taking things from those who are subject to them. God knew that. He didn't long for his people that he had 
saved from Israel, from Egypt and the hand of the Pharaoh, who was another form of a king. He didn't save his people from that slavery, just enslave them again to a king of their own. When he was talking with Samuel here, he noted that they were rejecting him as king and lord of their lives. And so for the next thousand years, through the reign of Saul and David and then Solomon and then all the divided kingdom uh, kings until Jesus would come and was recognized by the wise man as the true king of the Jews, which is what Pilate would ride over his head at the crucifixion. The legitimacy of Jesus being the promised one was always connected to the royal line of David, but not so that it would be an illustration of subjugation, but an illustration of disobedience. The Israelites, they disobeyed God. They longed for a man king. They wanted a king of their own instead of worshiping God as king. And they got what they asked for. And in many times it was, and sometimes it was good, a lot of the times it was bad, and some of the times it was really ugly. Now, the Messiah was to be of royal blood, according to the prophecies. The prophets made it clear that the Savior would sit on the throne of David, but the children of David made it more difficult than necessary for this to take place by their behavior. Critics suggest that Jesus could not have been the Messiah because Matthew and Luke had conflicting versions of Jesus' genealogy. The simple truth is that Matthew and Luke recorded the genealogy of Jesus from two perspectives. As I mentioned, Luke was tracing the lineage of Jesus through his mom, Mary, and Matthew the lineage of Jesus through his stepdad, Joseph. And the differing lines seem to take different the differing lines that seem to take different paths from the sons of David, Nathan being one and Solomon being other. The other support two important prophecies in Scripture. One which declares that the son of David will sit on the throne of the king of Israel and will rule forever. All eternity. Now remember, when we talked about this last week, we know he was talking about the eternal kingdom, heaven. That Christ would rise up, the Savior would rise up, and he would establish an eternal kingdom. And we're part of that eternal kingdom right now, which is the church. And whenever Christ returns or if we pass from this life, then we are translated into that eternal part of that. But we're living in the perspective of eternity right now as a part of that kingdom. So the prophets would teach us that the Messiah had to be a son of David as we talked about last week. The other thing is, that we learn is uh, which declare one of the things that the prophets declared uh, Jeremiah actually said it was that Solomon's heir so sick in God that Jeho Jehoiachin would never be allowed to have a child sit on the throne now everybody thought if I say the word King Solomon what's the first word comes to your mind wisdom that's absolutely right so how could one of the wisest men ever lived get to the end of his life and so disappoint God that God would yank from his hands the very kingdom that he built. God took the kingdom that was united under David, Saul, David, and Solomon, and he tore it into 12 pieces, 
10 went to the northern part of the kingdom, or called the northern part of the kingdom, or Israel. And then there was Judah and Benjamin that was kind of swallowed up by Judah. That would have been called the southern kingdom, or the kingdom of Judah. Solomon had done some pretty stupid things. And as this intrigue teaches us, in the royal line of David, there were the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as my Old Testament professor, Wilbur Fields, would say, um, well, that's what he would say. He would, that's where they quote it, sorry. It was Wilbur Fields who, taught, who, who used that term, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, after the 40-year reign of David, Solomon reigned for 40 years, expanding the kingdom even further. But in Solomon's waning years, he began to accommodate the worship of foreign gods. So when Solomon died and his son Rehoboam succeeded him, the kingdom would become divided into 10 northern tribes as ruled by Jeroboam and two southern tribes called by Judah by the royal line of David. Now, if you have your Bibles, look up 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 30. Or write it down. You can read this later. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 30. Here we have the reason why Solomon had the kingdom split after his death. It says there, Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing. Ahijah was a prophet. And he was wearing, he tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take 10 pieces for yourselves, for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshiped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in mine eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David Solomon's father did. But I will take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose and who obeyed my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from his son's hand and give you ten tribes. And I will give one tribe to his son so that, David's, so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. Solomon then tried to kill Rehoboam, but Jeroboam, or sorry, Solomon tried to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam fled to Egypt to Shishak, the king, and stayed there until Solomon's death. And as for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the annals of Solomon? Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel for 40 years. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Now, when we talk about the good, the bad, and the other, here's what's ugly. Here's what you need to understand. Jeroboam was a decent king. 
Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was a horrible king. As a matter of fact, it would be Rehoboam who so agitated the people that it set the stage for Jeroboam to be made king of Israel. Now, things started out pretty well for Solomon. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 7 through 12, we read, That night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon answered God, You have shown great kindness to David my father and have made me king in his place. Now, Lord God, let you prompt... Lord God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed. For you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people. For who is able to govern the great people of yours? God said to Solomon, Since this is your heart's desire, and you have not asked for wealth, possessions, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies, and since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people, over whom I have made you king. Therefore, wisdom and knowledge will be given you. And I will also give you wealth, possession, and honor, such as no king who has ever before you ever had and none after you will have. So Solomon, his kingdom started out pretty nicely. He was doing pretty good. He prayed or he asked God to give him wisdom. God had already established the king under his father, David. And so not only does God give Solomon wisdom, but he gives them all the other things that a king might long for. Now, wouldn't that make Solomon the king of kings if he was the greatest king ever? Do we get that fact that God was poised to bless Solomon with wisdom, knowledge, wealth, possessions, and honor greater than any before or who would follow because he was willing to submit himself and govern God's people, see them as God's people and not his, his own? But the royal blood does not always make one royalty. And Solomon fell in the end of his life because he collected a lot of wives and concubines who led his heart astray. And at the end of, the lot, at the end of his life, um, he would turn his back on God in a sense by worshiping these other gods that are mentioned there in the scripture in the prediction of Jeroboam. Now, Solomon would fail, and that's where Nathan would come into play. Nathan was her brother, and remember, that's why we talked about Bathsheba. She was an important part of the Christocentric narrative of God, or of Christ, because in this story, we had the women who were a part of the story, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the mother of both Solomon and Nathan. When Solomon failed to fulfill his duty uh, by being true to God, Nathan would then have to take up the cause of the royal line, but he was never made king. Now, we know very little about Nathan, the son of David and Bathsheba. He is not to be confused with Nathan the prophet who lived at the same time as David's, advi as David's advisor. Now, we, hear, we read about, a lot about Nathan the prophet, but don't confuse him with Nathan, David's son. But Luke traces the lineage of Mary through Nathan instead of Solomon. And Matthew traces Joseph's lineage through Solomon, whose son Jehoiachin would not have an heir in his line. So God had to, um, to fulfill the prophecy of Jesus or the Messiah coming from the house of David or as a son of David, even though he had forbidden 
a child of Jehoiachin's to sit on the throne. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24 through 30, records Jeremiah's proclamation to this particular end. And again, it's important from uh, a royal standpoint or a royal line standpoint. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, wear a, wear a signet ring on your right hand, I would still pull you off. I will deliver you into the hands of those who, are, who want to kill you, those you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born and there you will both die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. Is this man Jehoiachin a despised broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast in the land they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this. This man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. So we got ourselves a little pickle. We have Solomon's son, uh, who is ruling in Judah, Jehoiachin, who makes God so angry that he, along with the other good, bad, and ugly kings, or the bad and ugly kings, have God send the Israelites, or the Judeans, into uh, captivity in Babylon. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week when we talk about the exile and Zerubbabel in coming back. So what are we to, to make of all of this? There are many lessons that need to be learned, not the least of which is that we really only need Jesus as king. And when you throw people into the mix who want to claim authority over you, who want to govern you, it sometimes puts them in a position of, uh, of insanity because they think they have power. It makes them better than you. As a matter of fact, isn't that really the whole idea of royalty? Is that their blood is royal and yours is not? Now, let me first ask before I say anything else, is there anyone here that has royal blood? Anybody related to any one of the kings of England? or Alan, who are you related to? Okay, your royal highness. <laughs> Do not take offense, Alan. Just because Alan has royal blood does not make his blood any different than ours. And this is the problem that when we're talking about this whole concept of Christ being the Messiah, being the Savior, in this Christocentric narrative of Jesus, and the reason I've taken time to try to teach you about these things is because the people rejected God as their only king. And Christ would have to bring this all full circle at some point to demonstrate there is only one king of kings, Lord of lords. And when we worship him and honor him, he doesn't subject us to him. He asks us to submit to him in love and free will. So there are many lessons that we learn from this. But the most important one is that Jesus is the only king we need. And that was one of the reasons why our forefathers, our founding fathers of the United States of America, said no king but Jesus. 
They did not believe that we should be bound by any tyrannical man or woman who would subject us to their authority or governance. We are governed by the people, by the people and for the people, right? You believe that? Isn't that why you get agitated when someone stands at a podium and says, you can't go here, you can't go there, you can't do this, you can't do that. And the reason, we, the reason we do that is not because we're subjects, it's because we willingly submit to that. The truth is, is we could have been coming to church for the last two months. They had, uh, they had exempted churches from all the different orders that they had, but the problem was we couldn't gather in groups bigger than 10, and since you were supposed to stay at home and churches were not considered essential... You would have been breaking the law, I guess, or the rules if you came here. So a lot of churches didn't want to put their people in that situation. And we figured that we could do things in a different way for a little while. But now, in some states, the governors are showing their, you know, how powerful they are by saying, no, churches are not essential. Churches can't open. Oh, yeah, you can go to Walmart, Lowe's, and and see everybody in Dark County or anybody else around the world, but no, you can't go set in a room where they're taking uh, extreme precautions so that everyone's safe because they're not essential. You see, when men get involved in this process, we lose sight of who the King of Kings and Lord of Lords really is. Revelation chapter 9, verse 11 through 16 teaches us that Jesus is our ultimate victor, our great king. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider uh, is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on uh, on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed, dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now here, got to hold this in context. Jesus is going to come back someday and he's going to put back into order God as the ruler of this universe. And every king or queen or monarch or dictator or emperor who has stood against him, intentionally or unintentionally, will be brought down by the word of God himself. You see, God never, when he created us, he never wanted us to live as subjects to some king. He wanted us to live in freedom and submission to him. Now, the other important takeaway is that there are times that we are subject to authorities over us in this world. But our royal possession allows us to respond in the perfect way to any such circumstance. Now, you may not have realized this, but here's the good news is that you are royalty in a sense. But the kind of sense that God intends us to have. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 17, I'll give you just a second if you want to look that up. Peter talks about our royalty. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and aliens to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every, every human authority, whether to an emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. See, even in the context when we are to submit ourselves to our leaders, we can do so in the comfort and the appreciation that God is holding them accountable as well. And he will punish those even as he uses them to punish a lot of churches have responded using this verse in the last couple of months, especially when it says that we are to silence the foolish talk or silence ignorant talk of foolish people by just submitting, by being quiet and doing what we're supposed to do. But again, when we find ourselves in a conflict between those who say, obey God or obey us, we have to make that choice. And I'm thankful that here in Ohio, we don't have to make that choice. But in some parts around the country today, there are people who are, who are going to churches illegally against the order of their governors and mandates. Now, Peter teaches this truth knowing that many of the emperors of that day were cruel and unfair. There were some ugly and bad leaders. There were some ugly and bad emperors that the Christian church, as it began, had to endure and some would even be persecuted in the church, even to the point of death. And how this applies to us is in the perspective we take as foreigners and exiles in this world. We realize this world is not our home. This is just an experiment. That God is our king. He is our Lord. And we look forward to being with him. And we, should, we shouldn't concern ourselves with the same things non-believing pagans do because we know that Jesus is the king of kings and he will hold accountable all those who exercise authority and, and power in this world. King Saul was held accountable, as was King David and King Solomon and every king God ordained. They were all held accountable and they were all punished when they were disobedient. God might indulge us with the king. He might allow them in this world because we are weak and we're weary. But we need only King Jesus, who was the son of Mary, whose family line was traced back to David through Nathan. Now, it's Memorial Day weekend. It's been a busy weekend for us. We've had a family wedding yesterday and so with a rehearsal and family wedding and and. And family in, doing lots of different stuff outside. It's mulch weekend for us because we get mulches on sale. And so we got we got five yards of mulch. And then I got that, uh, we got that all spread out. And then uh, Sarah ordered five more yards of mulch. So I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with that. We got lots more to spread now. So, but we're having lots of fun this Memorial Day weekend. But we cannot take for granted what it means. 
Those who gave their life in service to this country, they died so that we would not live under tyranny. They died because they believed in the prospect of freedom. They were willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice because they believed what scripture teaches us, that there's only one king and that's King Jesus. Now tomorrow when we gather at the cemetery to remember those who gave their lives so that we might be free from worldly tyranny to serve freedom or to serve in freedom the one true king we believe in, it's important that we remember this story about why Jesus came through the line of Nathan through David. And it's also important that we remember that this biblical concept has been uh, attached or applied to our nation and to our governance by our founding fathers. That we don't need a king. And that we really don't need a lot of leaders either. We have presidents and we have governors and we have uh, representatives and, and congressmen and senators. And I saw a meme this last week that made a lot of sense where people are claiming to lead when actually they were elected to represent. They have the, we have the challenge these days to be honest and honor the Lord in our service of him. But it's been more, made more complicated by those who are trying to subject us to their authority. Maybe today we'll remember that what God calls us to do is to live as foreigners and exiles of this world and trust that God will bring everything under accountability and responsibility in due time and that as long as we serve him and we honor him in our submission to those worldly authorities, that God will bless us and he will see us through. That's what our founding fathers believed in. That's what those who gave their life in, this, in service for this country, they thought it was worth fighting for. They thought it was worth our freedom. So especially on this weekend as we talk about royalty, let's remember that we are royal priests to talk about the freedom we have through Christ.